And welcome to Sunday Night Live. I'm going to have to say that a bunch of times in the next few months. Welcome to Sunday Night Live. I'm afraid I'm not going to get to say that again because I've already had one sweet sister here come and say, you can't say that in Mississippi. That's a watermark, Waterford trademark thing. So welcome to Sunday Night Live. Tonight we're moving off of the parables and we're transitioning into a new series in the book of 1 Peter, if you'll turn there with me. The book of 1 Peter. Now the theme of the book of 1 Peter, the reason I wanted to kind of close out my time here with you at Waterford over this next weeks or months or however long it may be from this book is because of all the things I've been studying and personally have meant a lot to me recently, the subjects of suffering and perspective in regard to this world have been very heavy upon my heart. And I think that's because I've come to realize only in the last year that I have spent 48 years of my life misunderstanding Christian suffering. And I think we as a church, I don't just mean the Waterford church, I mean the church itself, everywhere and in every place, have almost gotten it exactly backwards of what the scriptures talk about in regard to suffering. And the book of 1 Peter is like a manual for how to survive suffering. But not just survive, it's how to defeat suffering. It's how to overcome it's how to find great success in the midst of suffering. In fact, this idea of hope and suffering is used in the book 15 times with eight different Greek words. It's almost as if Peter wants to express this concept in every way imaginable. We've always heard that repetition is the way that you learn. In fact, when we teach fellows how to preach and in our homiletics classes at sunset, we talk about in the introduction, you tell them what you're going to say, then you say it. And at the end, you tell them what you told them. And it's the method of repetition so that people get the idea, but you try not to say the exact same thing in the exact same way, but you try to get across the main principle in new, fresh ways so people could look at it from different angles and that whole concept can be impressed upon their minds and their hearts. Well, Peter talks about suffering 15 different times with eight different Greek words. That's what this book is all about. Hope in the midst of suffering. And as I mentioned, I myself, and I think the church as a whole, has completely, and I'm going to emphasize that word, completely misunderstood suffering and therefore we look at it in a totally backwards way from what the new testament tells us to do i have never in my life heard an expression of james chapter one never and i've grown up in the church from the time i was born i mean my first sunday in this world i was in the churches of christ and I have never, 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 not one time, not once even heard of anybody responding to the invitation and being overjoyed that they're facing suffering. Have you? 
Consider it pure joy when you face trials and temptations of all sorts. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And perseverance must have its perfect work. And you don't just have to take James' word for it. What about Jesus? In the Beatitudes. Remember the last of the seven Beatitudes? Blessed are those. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For there's, I don't know what is going on with this thing. I'm getting too fat for my suit, I guess. Let's try to move it to the front and see if that helps. What do you think? Put my holster in the front where I can get to it quick. What was I talking about? What's this sermon about? It's about suffering. Okay, so it says that in James chapter 1. What about in Matthew chapter 5? We said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Blessed are you. Blessed. That means it's a good thing. Blessed are you when they persecute you and treat you falsely, say all kinds of false accusations against you. But rejoice and be, it's interesting the word he uses there, exceedingly glad. That's in red letters in your Bible. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. For great is your reward in heaven. We don't have to take James and Jesus' word for it, do we? We can look at the words of the Apostle Paul. Who says, I want, I yearn to know Christ. And the power of his rising. And to share in his suffering. Paul doesn't say, well I might have to suffer he says, I long, I yearn to suffer. Now folks, let's be truthful. Do we all agree we don't see it that way? We don't see it that way. In fact, we see it exactly the opposite. We don't feel blessed when we suffer. We don't rejoice when we suffer. We don't have exceedingly Glad feelings and an attitude when we suffer. And we certainly don't long for it. Well, no one, Jesus, Paul, James, will have more to say about it and be more clear about it than Peter. And Peter is going to share, especially when we get to Peter, 1 Peter chapter 4, recently, I mean just in the last few months, I heard this in a sermon and it was framed in a different way, listening to a podcast, than I'd ever thought about it. And I've read that verse a hundred times. And when he talked about he who overcomes sin is he who suffers, it just clicked. Suffering is the path to everything good for the believer. And it makes perfect sense because we don't see other things in the right way either. And I want us to sing a song in a moment. Turn over your songbooks to 989. We're going to sing it in a minute. And I was having to choose between this one and This World Is Not My Home. But I chose this one because it's a little more upbeat. It's spiritual. But, but the reason I wanted to go here is there's another word that Peter will use more than any other New Testament writer. 
And it's a word we don't typically associate with spirituality, with Christianity. It's a word we generally would associate, and this is totally appropriate now, with Thanksgiving. And the original settlers to this continent, what do we call them? The pilgrims, right? And Peter will use that word pilgrims. And he'll connect it with the word strangers over and over and over. Those are kind of his go-to terms for God's people. And the idea is, is that we are not in friendly territory. That we are sojourners. That we're pilgrims. That we're strangers in another land. A place where we do not belong. A place that we don't have anything in common with. A place where we're surrounded not by friends, but surrounded by the enemy. By the way, that's why the Lord gave you the church. So that you have your platoon, if you will. For fellowship. And to strengthen. That's why all the stuff that talks about worship in Scripture. And I I read things and I hear things. And I hear brethren talk about, well, worship is about God. And I understand what they mean. They want people not to be selfish with it. But the truth is, is in Scripture, worship is not just about God. It's about each other. Singing to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Do not forsake the assembling of the saints together, but stir up one another towards good works. Why? Because, I mean, when you're surrounded by the enemy, I mean surrounded by the enemy, you better huddle together with your platoon or else you're going to be all alone. Nowhere in scripture is it going to be more clear that we need to have a heaven citizenship mindset than in the book of 1 Peter. He's going to talk about submitting to governmental authorities. And he wrote it during the reign of Nero. And I don't care if you're Republican or Democrat or whatever Bernie Sanders or Ross Perot were. I don't care which one you are. I'm telling you, You don't have your guy, and the other side doesn't have their guy. When you're a believer, you only got one guy. You only got one guy, because the rest of them are of the world. They're of the world. And that's why he says you can submit to all of them, because none of them are God's men. And we submit to the King of Kings, because he tells us you're not citizens here. Let me tell you, when you walk into the water, you relinquish your citizenship, in a sense. Don't you? You want to go be a citizen of Canada, you know what you got to give up? Citizenship here. So, there's no dual citizenship for believers. We can't be of the Lord and of heaven and of the world. I mean, how many times is that communicated in Scripture? Peter's going to deal with that more clearly than anywhere else in Scripture. And he wants us to get this, our minds wrapped around this principle that these are all connected. You're not, you're not citizens of this world. You're pilgrims. You're strangers. You're part of the church. You have your platoon to survive in this world. And it's going to be hard because it's always hard when you're behind enemy lines. It always has been in the history of the world. 
And you have to press on together knowing this truth. Soon and very soon we are going to see the King. Soon and very soon we are going to see the King. Hallelujah. Soon and very soon we are going to see the King. Hallelujah, hallelujah, we're going to see that it's hard here, but no more crying there. We are going to see the King. No more crying there. We are going to see the King. No more crying there. We are going to see the King. Hallelujah, hallelujah, we're going to see the king. And it doesn't matter what man may do to us here. No more dying there. We are going to see the king. Hallelujah, no more dying there. We are going to see the king. No more dying there. We are Hallelujah, hallelujah, we're going to see the king. Because there's only one, only one king. The king of kings and the Lord of lords. And whose name someday every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now it's no wonder that Peter wrote this book with this theme. He wrote it in the mid-60s AD. And Nero had just ascended the throne in Rome. Nero would be a great persecutor of the church, but he wouldn't even compare to the four or five that would come after him. Those who read this letter, you know, some would be older, and those who were the youngest, they would experience persecution like we can't even imagine or fathom. They would endure the persecution of Nero. Then they would endure the persecution just a few years later of Domitian. Then there would be the persecution of Trajan, the persecution of Hadrian, and then the persecution of Diocletian. They were about to be baptized in suffering. And so he writes this book as a survival manual. Anybody receive one of those survival knives when you were a kid? You girls probably didn't get that stuff for Christmas, but us boys did. Okay, when I was a kid, Rambo was really big. And the Rambo survival knife was the big thing. Anybody remember those? And it was quite, Lenore doesn't remember them at all, do you? Okay. Well, the Rambo survival knife was, you know, your typical military style knife it didn't fold it was just a a straight bladed knife and the handle I mean you could build a space shuttle with the handle I mean it had everything imaginable Uh, it had on the end it had a compass so if you got lost you could find your way with the compass and then you could screw the end off of it and it had a hole it was hollow inside and had all sorts of goodies in there it had fish fish in line and fish hooks it had matches It had all of these different tools, a little saw. Mine had a little wire saw with like 
things you could put your fingers through on the end and you could saw through a, I tried to saw through a little tree one time with that. I gave up. So I suppose if you absolutely had to to survive, it would work. But it wasn't the, the greatest thing in the world. But what's the idea there? That survival knife was so that if you get stuck out on your own and you've got to survive in the worst of conditions, that's what survival stuff is for, right? I mean, nobody eats MREs just because they like them. Well, I don't think they do. I mean, MRE, that's meals ready to eat that the military issues. I mean, a lot of those who lived during the World War II era never touched spam again. I mean, spam, that's, I like that stuff, but I wasn't in the military. I didn't live through those years. But some of y'all, you won't eat spam for nothing because you ate so much of it. Because it's, it's, it was designed to be a ration in wartime. To, I mean, but it is really good. I mean, what other meat will melt? Did you know spam is the only meat that melts? It's also the only meat that comes with its own gravy. You just got to warm up that jelly stuff. are we talking about what's the sermon about it's not about spam it's about survival that's right so i mean think about what that means no the military military men they have their survival gear they have their their uniform and those uniforms are often camouflaged and and made so that they would have a better chance of survival they have flat gear so that if if they get in a combat situation and shrapnel's flying, that perhaps they might be protected in a helmet. They have a backpack, and in that backpack they have food. They have a bedroll. They have all these things. And nobody would ever suggest, no soldier would ever suggest that I should be just as comfortable on the battlefield as I am back home in that barracks or in my own bed. Because they don't have any problem understanding where they are. Right? It's perfectly clear. Um, several of the fellows here at church and I went and saw this last week, Midway. The, the movie Midway that's about that turning battle in World War II out in the Pacific when our forces caught the Japanese by surprise and, and demolished their navy. And then the whole tide of the war changed from that point forward. But the part that really was intriguing to me, because I've read a lot about it, was Doolittle's Raiders. Anybody know who Doolittle was? He was one of the premier pilots in the Army Air Force at the time of World War II. And after the sneak attack upon Pearl Harbor, our country felt we needed to do something to strike back. And it was just basically a token effort, because they just dropped a few bombs. But he flew some B-17s off of an aircraft carrier flew all the way to Japan across the Pacific, dropped a few bombs on Tokyo, and then they ditched their plane over the South China Sea and had to try to survive in occupied China. And in the movie, and I've read details of his actual speech to his men, he told them, he said, we may not be coming back. In fact, we probably won't be. If any of you don't want to volunteer, I understand. Every single one of them volunteered. And he said, we're going to be in occupied China. And if they catch us, they're going to kill us. We bombed Tokyo. But he didn't, he didn't falter for any volunteers. All those men wanted to do it. And they did not complain in occupied China as they're hiding 
and swimming across swamps and hiding in the dirt. No one said, this is not, this is awful. I mean, they might have said it's awful, but they weren't comparing it back. Why didn't, I, why didn't they bring me a cot out here? Where's the air conditioning? You know, where's my three square meals a day? You know why? Because they knew what they were getting into. And they volunteered willingly. How is it we don't get that? You are pilgrims. You are strangers in a foreign land. Gird yourself up with the armor of God. The breastplate of righteousness. Shield of faith. Sword of the Spirit. Helmet of salvation. Your feet shod with the gospel of peace, with the belt of truth. That is not language of peace and prosperity and ease and comfort. And when things start to get a little tough, Lord, why are you allowing this to happen to me? Sorry, you're in occupied China. What on earth did you expect? What did you expect? You see, when soldiers actually have to fight, that's what they're there for. That's what they trained for. That's what they signed up for. So here's the question. What did we sign up for? What do we sign up for? Because the Bible is not shy about laying out the terms of the contract, or is it? It doesn't pull any punches, but somehow in Christianity, we've like missed it. And I know we've missed it because I hear brethren, I hear religious people. Who, when things get so tough, they're like, why is God doing this to me? Do you think when they were in occupied China, Doolittle's Raiders, when the Japanese were shooting at them, why is the United States doing this to me? Uh, no. They knew it was the enemy whose territory they were in. Folks, would we, would we expect anything different from the enemy when we have infiltrated the enemy and we have one, one, one purpose and that is to steal from the enemy what he thinks is rightfully his but we know is rightfully our Lord's. When you talk to your neighbor and say, would you come visit church with me? You are spitting in the enemy's face. You're trying to take from him what is his. And they are his right now. We're on the offense, not the defense. We're on the offense. How do you think the enemy would respond to that? You see, we, we framed it wrong. So Peter's going to start off this book. And that's why I knew there'd be a long introduction. So I've just prepared two verses tonight. 
In verse 1 and verse 2, he gives us two foundational principles found that will build his case for the rest of his message throughout 1 Peter. In verse 1, he says, To the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God, in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. The first thing he wants us to know is who we are. And he makes it perfectly clear in the very first verse. He says, he uses these words, pilgrims. He says, you are the elect. You are the sanctified. You see, this idea of pilgrims and strangers, we just don't talk about it very much. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, he'll say, Beloved, I beg you, as sojourners, as pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lust which war against your soul. In essence, he says, don't eat the food while you're there. It's not good for you. It'll corrupt you. In John chapter 17, verse 16, Jesus says, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And Jesus made this perfectly clear when he told us, he said, if the world hates you, you should not be surprised. The world hated me before it hated you. And you are of me. So of course the world's going to hate you. He says, we are his chosen children. Now when I think of that, I think sometimes we miss the great honor of what it means to be a chosen child of God. I, I preached a lesson that addressed this a little bit at graduation at Sunset a few years ago when I talked about that men who go into preaching, sometimes the thing that drags them down is brethren, just frankly. Because they'll be discouraged that why do brethren act this way? Or why are they immature? Or why are they petty? Or why do they complain? Or whatever it may be. And what I always tell my, my students, I said, don't ever complain about that. Because if the brethren were everything they needed to be, they wouldn't need you. First of all. But secondly, I told them, I said, brothers, you are leading folks in a foreign environment. You are leading people behind enemy lines. You have to be the tip of the spear. And in that, it's vitally essential that you wrap your mind around the fact that, yeah, difficulty is part of it. You know what's funny about that is we have trouble getting people to sign up to be preachers today. I've told you that over and over. But we don't have any trouble, any shortage of volunteers for Navy SEALs. Or Marine Corps Recon. Or Green Beret. Do you know they reject many fold as many as they accept into those programs? And do you know who has the highest divorce rate? Elite super soldiers. You know they have PTSD almost 100%. They have to be in counseling. They have a super high suicide rate. They have a higher poverty rate. They are paid almost nothing 
to put their lives on the line every single day. Yet there's no shortage of men signing up to do it. In fact, they're turning away so many. But yet, in the church, and I just use preachers as an example because that hits home to me. But in the church, we as believers will be like, well, I just can't believe this is happening to me. Or I can't believe. And then, brethren, don't encourage their sons to go into the hardest job you'll ever love. Because, well, they might be treated bad. That's the difference between elite and mediocre. That's the difference between making a difference and being comfortable. See? An elite soldier wants to do that. And he knows he's going to have a higher divorce rate. He knows his family's going to suffer. He knows that he's going to have all sorts of emotional and mental struggles because of what he's going to see. But he does it because the high call of duty is more important than all of the trappings of comfort. He said, you have been chosen you have been selected you have been called you have been commissioned as God's pilgrims as his children as his elite will it be hard absolutely will there be challenges Unquestionably. Will there be glory? Without a doubt. When you fight the good fight. He says you need to know who you are. You see, God made a plan that we might be saved. John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me will come and and the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all ye who are labor and weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He has called every one of us. That, that's been misunderstood in the religious world. That that calling is that God somehow chose before we were born. No, no, no. The calling is the same. If we want to go back to that military metaphor. You know, they'll take anybody who's willing to sign up and do the hard things they're willing to do to qualify. You see, that call has been given to everyone, but only the few, the proud, will be willing to accept the call. And you know, this is important because maybe it should impact the way we teach people the gospel. You think so, Chuck? I mean, when we get on like some TV preachers do and talk about, oh, if you just... Trust in Jesus, everything's going to be so easy in your life. Now, don't get me wrong. I, I think God's people are blessed. You look at Old Testament characters. I mean, by the things that this world calls a blessing, they seem to all have it, right? Or most of them did. The point was, is they didn't care about that stuff very much. They were about devotion. To the point they would march their son up a mountain with a knife. And kindling for an altar. See, God doesn't have any trouble blessing somebody like that. 
God doesn't have any trouble blessing the person who's already said in their heart and said to the Lord, any suffering that comes my way, I will never let you down. It doesn't matter. Even if you slay me, Job will say, so I will serve you. Once that attitude is there, it may still be really tough. It may, God may just pour blessings on us. It's still the same thing because we've already committed in utter devotion to Him. You know, we talk about retention rates. If we teach this the way the Scriptures teach it, what it entails to be a Christian, fewer people may respond. But the ones that do will know what they're getting into. Will be committed to a cause. The second verse, he not only tells us who we are. Verse 2, it says, Elect according to the foreknowledge and sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. You see, what he has, he tells us not only what, who we are in Christ, he tells us what has been and what is being done for us, which he calls sanctification. And notice that the sanctification is accomplished through the blood of Jesus Christ and the sanctification of the Spirit. You see, if we go back to that same metaphor of us being the elite, the called behind enemy lines, we are fewer in number. Far fewer in number than the world around us. All we've got is this little platoon of 350 people right here, right? But we do have something our enemy doesn't have. We have been equipped. And you know, when our soldiers, I, I saw some, read some articles and saw some documentaries about SEAL Team 6 that went behind the lines and took out Osama bin Laden. And in that, what was interesting about it is that they have their rifles, the enemy did, and all of this. But what they didn't have was night vision goggles that could see everything just as clear as day at night. SEAL Team 6 had that. The enemy didn't have it. They had rifles that had such excellent silencers they couldn't be heard in the same room. They had helicopters that could fly in totally silent. Even though they're outnumbered 100 to 1, totally silent and put them exactly where they needed to be. They had better equipment than the enemy was ever going to have. And there's, there's comfort in that. Isn't there? That I've got what I need. And you know what? I'm going to face an enemy. And it's going to be hard. And it's going to be difficult. There's going to be trials. And they may even take my life. But what I know is this rifle is better than anything they've got. And these goggles are better than, than their regular vision is. And I've got an extraction team that can get here. And nothing can stop them from doing it. Because we may be fewer. But we're better. We're better. And Peter says the same thing about us. You have been given the sanctification of the Spirit. And you say, that's a stretch to call that a rifle and night goggles. I don't think so, because Paul would say it this way in Ephesians. Take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. 
we have better weapons. We have the Spirit of God living in us every day. And I'm not going to try to get off into exactly what he does. I don't know. It's beyond my simple mind to fully understand. But I know this. That any lesson I've ever preached up here, if it's touched your heart, it probably was less because I studied it and more because there's spirits working in you and working in me. Not because he's giving me, you know, miraculously the right thing to say, but in some way that's beyond our ability to fully grasp the spirits working. And the Bible makes that promise. In John 6, 37, he says, All the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will be by no means cast out. That was a verse that was in the last point. I don't know why I thought it was important here. Well, you get the point. The Bible tells us that the Spirit lives within us. Your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. That we have the seal of the Spirit. That we have a helper every single day. And just as those elite soldiers outnumbered a hundred, a thousand to one. They have the comfort that they have been chosen, that they are the elite, and that they have better equipment. So do you. First Peter is all about these principles. Being and finding hope in suffering. And if anything is accomplished through this Sunday Night Live series, I hope it's this. I hope a little bit, and it's hard for us, when suffering comes, we just want to get rid of it. But I hope that we can begin to transform our minds, to see it in a more biblical way, to see it as just part of the war, part of the process. Tonight, if, you, if any of this has touched your heart, if it's connected with you, about spiritually how you should view your life, view your troubles, view your challenges, and view the great blessings God has given us to overcome. If you need to become more of an overcomer, let us pray with you. That's what your platoon is for, right? Come right now as we stand and as we sing.